2: a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit
1: GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
3: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, a dangerous drama unfolds in Russia as a mercenary group fighting the Ukrainians turns on Vladimir Putin and his government. In a breathtakingly bizarre twist to the war in Ukraine this weekend, what could have been a disastrous armed conflict inside Russia, the country considered America's top nuclear adversary came to a sudden halt late Saturday. The crisis has cooled for now. But what will the impact of the uprising be on Vladimir Putin's already weakened hold over a country struggling in its war against Ukraine? Here in Washington, intelligence agencies have been quietly monitoring the escalating tensions between the Wagner mercenary group and the Putin government for some time and spent the weekend nervously watching events in Russia unfold. We'll hear from Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the head of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner. And one year after the end of Roe versus Wade, the march to ban abortion in some states continues.
4: We will never rest and never relent until we restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law in every state in the land. As do efforts
3: to motivate voters to fight for the right to choose an abortion.
5: The court was betting that all of us would be Well,
3: We'll talk with Biden campaign surrogate and Texas Congresswoman Veronica Escobar. Finally, the new head of the United Nations World Food Program, Cindy McCain, joins us to talk about where the hunger crisis is worst and why we need to do more. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. There is a lot we don't know yet about the motivations behind and the consequences following Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin's actions in Russia this weekend. What we do know about what one senior administration official calls a very bizarre episode is that there seems to be a pause, at least for now, due to a truce struck between Vladimir Putin and Prigozhin that was brokered by the president of Belarus, a Putin ally. The terms of that deal are still emerging. But even after Prigozhin abruptly stopped his march to Moscow yesterday, there remains trepidation about the risks ahead on this unpredictable path for Russia, which holds the world's largest nuclear arsenal. CBS News correspondent Ian Lee reports from Dnipro, Ukraine.
6: Rarely do failed mutineers receive a hero's departure. But residents cheered Wagner's soldiers as they left the Russian city of Rostov late last night. Come back alive and take care of yourselves, shouted people in the crowd. The mercenary group's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin smiled and posed for selfies on his way out. Some greeted the returning Russian authorities less warmly, with jeers and insults. For 24 hours, the world watched Wagner forces inch closer to Moscow. Updates of their advance splashed across social media. The Russian military secured the capital, soldiers deployed on the streets, and heavy equipment ripped up roads leading to the city. Prigozhin launched his mutiny after accusing the Russian military of killing his men in Ukraine with a missile strike, a claim Russian defense officials denied. His men quickly seized Rostov, home of Russia's southern military headquarters, before advancing toward Moscow. On Russian state TV, President Vladimir Putin accused Prigozhin of treason, though he never mentioned his name and called for unity. We will protect our people and country from any threats, including internal betrayal, said Putin. And what we're facing is precisely betrayal. And with Wagner troops just 124 miles from Moscow, the Kremlin spokesman announced a deal. Wagner troops would be pardoned and returned to their bases, Criminal charges against Prigozhin would be dropped, and he'd go into exile in Belarus, whose leader brokered the agreement. This morning, an uneasy calm settled on Moscow. Life in Rostov also returned to normal. Putin's hold on power survived, battered and bruised, but not all may be forgiven. In a 2018 interview, Putin told a state TV reporter there's one thing he can never forgive. Betrayal, he said. Russia continued airstrikes on several cities here in Ukraine while Keefe took advantage of the chaos to launch major assaults. But it'll take time to see what effect this mutiny has on the war. Margaret.
3: Ian Lee in Ukraine. Thank you. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is one of the many top Biden administration officials who's been monitoring the events of the last two days. And he joins us from the State Department. Good morning to you, Mr. Secretary. Morning, Margaret. Uh, Can you tell us who in the Biden administration has been in touch with Russian leadership?
7: Well, I instructed my own team at the president's behest to um, engage with the Russians, first and foremost, to make sure that they understood their responsibilities uh, in terms of protecting uh, our own personnel, ensuring their safety uh, and well-being, as well as any American citizens uh, in Russia. So a number of uh, people uh, have engaged to make sure that the Russians got that message.
3: Is the U.S. ready for further unrest in Russia and the scenario that Vladimir Putin does not remain in power? Uh,
7: Margaret, this is an unfolding story, and I think uh, we're in the midst of a moving picture. We haven't, seen, we haven't seen the last act. We're watching it very closely and carefully, but just step back for a second and put this in, in context. Sixteen months ago, Russian forces were on uh, the doorstep of Kiev in Ukraine, thinking they'd take the city in a matter of days, thinking they would erase Ukraine from the map as an independent country. Now, over this weekend, uh, they've had to defend Moscow, Russia's Mm -hmm. capital, against mercenaries of Putin's own making. Uh, Prigozhin himself, uh, in this entire incident, has raised profound questions about the very premises for Russia's aggression against Ukraine in the first place, saying that Ukraine or NATO did not pose a threat to Russia, which is part of Putin's narrative. And it was a direct challenge to Putin's authority. So this raises profound questions. It it shows real cracks. We can't speculate or know exactly where that's going to go. We do know that Putin has a lot more to answer for in the, in the weeks and months ahead.
3: But is the U.S. prepared for the potential of the fall of the Putin government? And is their nuclear stockpile, the largest in the world, secure?
7: We always prepare for every contingency. Uh, in terms of what happens in Russia, it's an internal matter for the, the Russians to figure out. Of course, when we're dealing with a major power, and especially a major power that has nuclear weapons, uh, that's something that's of concern, something we're very focused on. We haven't seen any change in Russia's nuclear posture. There hasn't been any change in ours, but it's something we're going to watch very, very carefully.
3: Vladimir Putin is appearing on television this morning, uh, but it appears to have been prerecorded. Do you know the whereabouts of Vladimir Putin right now? Is he in Moscow?
7: Uh, I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to speculate on that uh, or what information that uh, we have. Again, uh, we're watching that, that carefully. I think one of the things this, this tells you is that we still don't, uh, don't have finality in terms of what was actually agreed uh, between uh, Prigozhin and, and Putin. I suspect that we're going to learn more in the days uh, and, and weeks ahead about what, are, what deal they struck. The president brought together not only the National Security Cabinet yesterday, uh, he, he brought together uh, the leaders of our key allies and partners. He instructed all of us uh, to do the same. We have tremendous unity of purpose and unity of action when it comes to supporting Ukraine. And that's where our focus is.
3: But as you just said, uh, Prigozhin drew into question the very premise for Vladimir Putin's war. So do the Wagner fighters return to the fight in Ukraine? Do we know?
7: Uh, Too soon to tell what's going to happen to the Wagner forces, whether they go uh, back to the fight. I mean, it was extraordinary that they were moving out of Ukraine and into Russia. But um, it's too soon to tell whether they're going to go back into the fight as Wagner, whether they get integrated into regular Russian forces, what this means for Wagner and other parts of the world. I mean, keep in mind, uh, both Putin yeah. and Prigozhin are responsible for committing terrible acts in Ukraine against Ukrainian civilians. Uh, but also, uh, in the case of Wagner, in country after country in Africa, where, wherever Wagner is, death and destruction yes. and exploitation follow. But all of this is likely to, to unroll in the, um, in the coming days, in the coming weeks, to the extent that it presents uh, a real distraction for, um, for Putin uh, and for Russian authorities. Uh, that they have to look at, uh, sort of mind their, their rear, even as they're trying to, to deal with mm-hmm. the counteroffensive in Ukraine, um, I think that creates even greater openings for the Ukrainians to do well on the ground.
3: Well, as you just indicated, Yevgeny Prigozhin has uh, a footprint that goes from Africa to Syria to Ukraine. Do you have any idea where he is right now?
7: Uh, I can't get into what we, we know or don't know through, uh, through, through intelligence. It's something that we're looking at uh, and that we're tracking.
3: One of the things Pergozhin did was directly undermine the Russian military leadership. Do we know who is in charge of the Russian military right now? And how could Vladimir Putin agree to any changes in the leadership of his military and still look like he's in charge?
7: Those are are great questions, and I think we'll get the answers in the the days and weeks ahead. It's too soon to say with any any certainty what the final chapter in this particular book is going to be. Um, The the rising storm of uh, Prigozhin uh, inside of Russia is something that uh, many people have seen over, over months now. Uh, direct challenges to the, leadership, to the military leadership, um, powerful criticism of Russia's conduct of its aggression against Ukraine, and now questioning the very premises of the, of the war. Uh, Prigozhin himself saying that Ukraine and NATO did not pose a threat to Russia, which has, right. as you know, been part of Putin's narrative. These uh, create more cracks in the Russian facade. And those cracks are already profound, Uh, uh, economically, militarily, um, it's standing in the world. All of those things uh, have been dramatically diminished by Putin's aggression against Ukraine. He's managed to bring uh, Europe together, he's managed to bring NATO together, he's managed to get Europe to move off Mm -hmm. of Russian energy, he's managed to alienate Ukrainians and unite Ukraine at the same time. So across the board, this has been a strategic failure. Now, you introduce into that profound internal divisions, uh, and there are lots of questions he's going to have to answer. In the weeks ahead.
3: Is there a possibility of civil war?
7: I don't want to speculate on that. It uh th- these are fundamentally internal matters for the uh, Russians to um, to f- to figure out. It's not our place to do that.
3: Will President Biden reach out directly to Vladimir Putin? Has the CIA director reached out to Russian intelligence? Uh
7: Margaret, I'm not going to get into any diplomatic contacts that we uh we, we may have or have had. I can tell you that Uh, On my instruction, on the president's instruction, uh, we had some engagement with the Russians over the weekend to make sure they understood their responsibilities when it comes to looking out for the safety and security of our personnel in Russia. Very important that we do that, and we did that.
3: Uh, I want to ask you about uh, Beijing. I was there with you earlier this week, and I listened to you pick every single one of your words very carefully. And then on our way home, President Biden uh, called Xi Jinping a dictator with economic problems who didn't know what his own military was doing by flying the spy balloon over the United States. How much did that hurt the work you did?
7: Uh, Margaret, one of the things that I think you, you heard me say during the trip uh, and after the trip is that the, the main purpose was uh, to bring some greater stability to, to the relationship. But one of the things that I said to uh, Chinese counterparts during this trip was that we are going to continue to do things and say things that you don't like, just as you're no doubt going to continue to do and say things that we don't like. And if you look at what comes out of the are you saying Chinese that was the foreign ministry on a daily Mark? basis, uh, you'll hear that. Um, the, uh, the president always speaks candidly. He speaks directly, uh, he speaks clearly, and he speaks for all of us.
3: You also said that uh, Chinese officials assured you they won't provide lethal assistance to Russia, but that Chinese companies are. According to U.S. Treasury, Chinese companies have also done business with the Wagner Group. Have you reached out to the Chinese about trying to gauge what is happening on the ground inside Russia now?
7: Um, again, I can't get into any diplomatic contacts that we may or may not have had, but you're exactly right that uh, when it comes to the the visit, um, the Chinese did reiterate to us, as well as to uh, many other countries, that uh, they have not and will not provide lethal military assistance to Russia for use uh, in Ukraine. I also raised the concerns that you said about Chinese companies uh, providing um, uh, that kind of support and pressed them to be vigilant uh, about that. Uh, I'm sure they're making their their own assessments about what's happened inside of Russia uh, in recent days.
3: Secretary Blinken, thank you for your time this morning.
7: Thanks, Margaret. Good to be with you.
3: We turn now to the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. He joins us from Dayton. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. I understand top congressional leaders, yourself included, have been briefed multiple times in recent days by the administration in regard to the risk posed by the Wagner Group. Last year, U.S. intelligence had extraordinary detail those are the words, the head of U.S. intelligence, about Putin's plans to invade Ukraine. I wonder how you would describe the intelligence the U.S. had about this march on Moscow.
4: Sure. Well, the Intelligence Committee was very much aware that the conflict between Prigozhin and, and Putin uh, was uh, inevitable. And even from public sources, which you've seen, Prigozhin for months has put out videos critical of the Russian government, critical of Putin. Putin has allowed this. And as the secretary said, uh, those videos themselves even included uh, criticizing Putin's very premise of the war, that it was not started by NATO, that there were not Nazis in, in Ukraine. And then entering into uh, Moscow entering into Russia itself and taking their convoy to Moscow, that really shows to the basic issue of whether or not Putin controls his military for any government to have stability, they have to control their military. Uh, obviously, Pergoza, in order to make it that distance, has to have accomplices. you know where was the air force? Where was the Russian air force in preventing this? Uh, that's going to be an issue that uh, that Putin's going to have to deal with both internationally and domestically is, uh, you know, his government as an authoritarian government depends on its assertion of power force in order to be able to contain uh, to uh, be able mm-hmm. to continue to wield power. And that certainly is going to be an issue.
3: Was Vladimir Putin himself aware of the potential uh, of this uprising?
4: Well, I, you know, I can't go into what our intelligence was, but I can tell you this. These videos that he was allowing Prigozhin to put, put out um, were, were publicly. They were distributed around the world. Right. Putin certainly was aware of them because he was allowing them the content of them, where they not only criticized Putin and the Russian government um, and called for the removal of the Ministry of Defense. Ultimately, as you know, this weekend, Pergosin's statement was removal of the president himself. So Vladimir Putin certainly had lots of public notice uh, that Prigozhin was, uh, was, a, was a critic and was threatening uh, the, the government and now ultimately uh, took this military action into Russia itself.
3: But that raises the question of whether this was a strategic move by Prigozhin or just sort of a gamble and an opportunity he seized. Do we have any insight?
4: Well, you know, he's a military guy. Remember, this is like a 12 hour trip from Ukraine to Moscow. And he got within two hours of Moscow. Now, being a military guy, he understands the logistics and really the, the assistance that he's going to need to do that. This is not a weekend trip he's taking, taking his convoy and his military convoy up uh, to Moscow. There's a number of accomplices, including, as we saw, some of the Russian people on the border with Ukraine who clearly support the Wagner group uh, in, in contrast to their support for the Russian government. Uh, This is something that would have had to have been planned for a significant amount of time to be executed in the manner which it was.
3: There was a report last month that Prigozhin had offered um, in January to help Ukraine attack the Russian military by sharing information on troop positions that he had. Um, Is this in any way helpful, what has just occurred, uh, to ending the war in Ukraine? Like, where is Prigozhin's interest?
4: Right. So this really does hurt, hurt Putin um, and not only just politically and in his, his leadership in Russia and, and his presidency, but in his efforts to uh, continue the war in Ukraine. You know, I think obviously in the beginning, there's going to be a, a, an initial increase of activity from Russia against uh, Ukraine. But because he went, Putin himself went on national TV to respond to Prigozhin, and Prigozhin said that, that your government has lied to you. This is not a war that NATO started. There are no Nazis in Ukraine. Taking down the very premise makes it much more difficult for Putin to continue to turn to the Russian people and say we should continue to send people to die uh, in this war that for which Prigozhin himself has said to the, the Russian people, the premise is a is lie.
3: There was a lot that Secretary Blinken said he could not answer during our interview. Is that because U.S. intelligence does not know or because it's classified?
4: Well, you know, I can't answer that either, but you can you can assume certainly that, that we have been very focused on Russia and Ukraine. And this is an area where you know, Ukraine's successes has been a result in part because of the successes of the intelligence community. So we've been very, very focused on this. Um, I think that um, as we, mm-hmm. as we go forward, this is going to be even more critical uh, as, it fa- as we face the threats, both for Ukraine and for the United States, is what's going to happen to Putin and Russia next. Sharon,
3: please stay with us. Um, we have to take a break. We'll be right back in one minute with more of our conversation.
1: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this.
3: And we're back with House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner. Uh, I want to uh, talk a bit about China here as well, sir, but let me just button up. What, how would you define the relationship between China and Vladimir Putin right now?
4: Right. So President Xi's got to be very concerned right now, because, as you know, he went to Moscow, stood next to Putin and said, you know, we're together. He and, and Vladimir Putin are bringing about change that hasn't happened for a 100 years. And of course, that is the march of authoritarianism against democracy that we won in World War II that they're now rising up against. But now he's standing next to a guy who can't even control his his own his own military. Remember, uh, Putin in his national address said that these individuals are going to have inevitable punishment. And then in the end, um uh, Prigozhin gets a vacation in, in Belarus and his troops are now going to sign contracts. It sounds more like paperwork than a, than a KGB agent doing inevitable punishment. Xi, in seeing that with Putin, has got to understand that that Putin's uh, stature in the world has diminished. That diminishes President Xi. Uh, and certainly, as uh, Putin looks weakened, certainly not being able to control his, his military and being a strong nuclear power, President Xi has to be worried about the stability of Russia itself.
3: We'll be watching that. Um, you know, last Friday, the direct, or this past Friday, sorry, I'm back from Beijing and my time frame's all screwed up here. <laughs> but um, the Director of National Intelligence uh, released this declassified summary of the findings in regard to links between the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the origin of the COVID pandemic. Um, it says several researchers at that institute were ill in 2019 with symptoms consistent with but not diagnostic of COVID. Why is it so inconclusive still?
4: Well, and this is the problem really What what the Director of National Intelligence has done, Director Haynes. We passed a law saying declassify the information that you have about the COVID and, and uh, Wuhan labs activities. What they did is they basically went and, and did a paper on what they believe about the, in, the intelligence they've looked at. To give you an example of this, We've asked to open the curtain and release the intelligence. And they went behind the curtain, read the stuff and came out and said, well, this is what we think about it. This is not sufficient. And certainly this is going to be set up between a battle between Congress and Director of National Intelligence to make certain that, that the law that was passed unanimously, both the Senate and the House and signed by the president is complied with, but also the American public get the answers they deserve.
3: So there was a classified annex to this, though, that, that was not released. I would assume that you have read that. Um, is that- no,
4: actually, we just got this uh, late late Friday, so I haven't had ac- access to it in a classified setting. But even releasing a classified annex goes against what the law says. The law says declassify, not give us more classified information. I mean, my committee has already seen a significant amount of this intelligence. Giving all- mm-hmm. my committee more intelligence doesn't give it to the American public, and that's what the declassification law was about.
3: But the, the report says that, you know, it details two agencies say it was a lab accident. CIA can't determine National Intelligence Council and four other agencies say most likely caused by natural exposure. Um, Do you believe that there actually is a definitive conclusion that the government's not releasing?
4: Well, so I I have seen, for example, the classified annex to the report that President Biden requested the intelligence community gave. What you just read were more conclusions by the intelligence community. In the report that was given to the president, the 90-day or so report, um, they have con- they have information in that report that contradicts, I believe, the impressions that are given in, in this, these statements by the Intelligence Committee. We want the intelligence released, not their opinion about the intelligence. If we wanted their opinion, we would have asked for it. We passed a law saying declassified. It's the law of the land. Release this so the American public can see it. Okay. Experts out there in the community besides the intelligence yeah. community need to take a look at this and help us understand what really happened that resulted in millions okay. of people dying.
3: Congressman, thank you for your time today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin is actually wanted by the FBI here in the U.S. for his efforts to meddle in the 2016 elections. CBS News foreign correspondent Deborah Pata has been tracking the Wagner Group, and she reports this morning from Johannesburg, South Africa.
9: Yevgeny Prigozhin's uprising appears to have been extremely well-planned and executed. Who would have thought one of Putin's closest allies, a former convict-turned-Kremlin-caterer, would eventually be pitted against the Russian leader? It was during Russia's first invasion of Ukraine in 2014 that Prigozhin made the leap from Putin's chef to warlord, running an off-the-books mercenary group. Wagner's soldiers started showing up in Syria, then across Africa, and while his hired guns deal in death, Prigozhin makes his money by plundering natural resources in places like the mineral-rich Central African Republic, or CAR. In exchange, Wagner provides the mercenary muscle to prop up the country's leader, even guarding the president. What Wagner doesn't say is that they effectively run this nation through violence, and a galaxy of shell companies. Now, this model is repeated across Africa, allowing Prigozhin to evade sanctions and rake in billions to fund what the US has called a transnational criminal organization, as well as his private army in Ukraine. Until recently, Prigozhin vigorously denied any links to Wagner, but stepped out of the shadows last year, recruiting prisoners from Russian penal colonies in exchange for pardon, and at salaries far higher than any regular Kremlin soldiers. And he certainly enjoyed the notoriety, filming himself strutting around the battlefield and delivering Putin his only real victory after months of war, capturing Solidar and Bakhmut at a heavy cost though, as many of his mercenaries were killed in that fighting. Now, throughout this war, Pogosian has appeared untouchable and has survived even after this armed insurrection. And he seems convinced, Margaret, that at the very least, he will continue his reign in Africa, the real Wagner money spinner. Deborah Pata, thank you.
3: For more on the situation in Russia, we turn to CBS News national security correspondent David Martin and former U.S. ambassador to Russia, now a CBS News contributor, John Sullivan. Good to have both of you here. Um, David, uh, let's start on just what happened on the ground. 124 miles outside of Moscow. That's how far the Wagner Group says they got. What does this tell us about Russia's intelligence and military?
5: Well, it came as a surprise to U.S. intelligence. They, they had some warning that there was going to be a mutiny. But they were surprised when the uh, Russians put up no resistance, allowed um, uh, Prigozhin to go into their military headquarters in Rostov and then send his army unopposed north toward Moscow. Um, And then they were surprised again by how quickly a deal was made. They had expected uh, a longer, more violent affair, and that's why people like the National Security Advisor, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff canceled their travel plans because there was the danger that this mutiny could mushroom into a civil war and that brings up all sorts of concerns about the security of Russia's nuclear weapons and what you learn is that when a person like Putin is sitting on top an arsenal of thousands of nuclear weapons his problems very quickly become your problems
3: right and and ambassador i mean it's it sounds strange sometimes that phrase catastrophic success when foreign policy analysts talk about it but are we actually in a situation where Vladimir Putin is preferable to Yevgeny Prigozhin in terms of running the Russian state?
10: Well, he's certainly a known quantity. He's a, a hardened adversary of the United States, but the alternative could be worse. So I think the Biden administration is rightfully concerned, as, as David suggests, with chaos and uncertainty in Russia with their nuclear arsenal. is very dangerous, not just for the United States, but for the world.
3: So... When, we, when you look at the map uh, Rostov the, the city that you mentioned it's a major logistics hub on that route to Moscow do we have any insight yet David into what's happening within the Russian military right now are they remaining loyal to Vladimir Putin
5: there was no sign that uh, any of the security apparatus around Putin had uh, had switched Sides, they seem to hang hang tough with Putin. the The question of uh, why there was no Russian resistance. I mean, one possible explanation is because uh, Putin told them mm-hmm. not to resist. We're going to settle this as quickly and as peacefully as possible,
3: um, Ambassador. It was a surprise to many when it was Belarus that announced that they were the brokers here, that the president of that country. Now, that country is pretty much viewed as a a vassal state of Russia. Vladimir Putin controls it. There are nuclear weapons that Vladimir Putin says he's putting there. Explain this part of the puzzle. Like, why would Yevgeny Prigozhin move to Belarus? Why are they suddenly appearing to be power brokers?
10: Well, as, as you point out, Margaret, Lukashenko is in power now as president because of Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin came to his rescue in August 2020. It was Lukashenko who was dependent on Putin. But now, think about this. This is, as you know, uh, Belarus is part of a union state with Russia. They are conjoined. How dependent now is Putin on Lukashenko? It's an it's a it's evidence of the weakness that this reveals what's happened in the last uh, three or four days, the weakness of Vladimir Putin. It's not just an appearance of weakness. It's actual weakness. Mm -hmm. A person that he has said is a traitor who has stabbed him and his nation in the back. He struck a deal with a deal that he needed to strike to avoid bloodshed and chaos. What strong leader does that?
3: Well, exactly. And, and when you look at, I think for so many Americans who are learning about Wagner Group for the first time, and they just heard Deborah's great reporting there, the U.S. considers them a transnational criminal organization. Is this like the mafia has its own military? I mean, how do we think about that?
10: Well, Prigozhin himself spent most of the 1980s in prison because he's a career criminal. Wagner operates in states in Africa and elsewhere, not because they're patriots who are uh, executing policy on behalf of the Russian government. They're there to get access to gold, mine, gold mines, oil resources, and so forth. This is a money-making organization, corrupt organization, that the United States correctly treats as a transnational criminal organization.
3: And that's what, David, it was interesting to hear from both the Secretary and Mike Turner, this concern of what happens next, not— not just in Ukraine, but in Libya, in Syria, throughout Africa. Do we have any concept yet? Uh, I mean, Does this become a separate company? Does this become part of the Russian military?
5: Well, I somehow don't think that uh, Boghossian has gone to Belarus to live out his days in idle exile. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's uh, out of the game. And although there's been this deal with uh, Vladimir Putin, who says Vladimir Putin is going to deliver Mm -hmm. on the deal. I mean, if I were Prigozhin, I would keep my bodyguards close and my food taster closer, because poison is one of uh, uh, Putin's favorite instruments of uh, getting revenge.
3: Mm -hmm. He has a force of what, 25,000 under his command, allegedly?
5: That's that's what he's credited for. He was at uh, the start of this year, he was credited with 50,000, and I think The drop from 50 to 25,000 is a measure of how much they lost in the uh, in the fighting in in eastern Ukraine.
3: This was uh, great to have your analysis and your reporting. Thank you both. Thanks, Margaret. We'll be right back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your
11: perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
3: It's now been one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade and the political dissension over abortion rights continues to grow. We've recently discussed the topic with Republican presidential candidates on this broadcast. But today we turn to Texas Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, a co-chair of President Biden's reelection bid. And she joins us from El Paso. Good morning to you, Congresswoman. Uh, It's been 50 years. Since 1973 and that ruling, Um, but in that time, Congress failed to pass any protections for abortion access, Um, even when Democrats controlled both houses, even when presidents were Democrats. We're now at this point where our CBS News polling shows 53 percent of Democrats feel as though your party isn't doing enough on the issue of abortion. Why do Democrats think this is a winning issue for the party when they've not been able to deliver on it for so long?
2: Well, Margaret, um, the the House Democrats have passed the Women's Health Care Protection Act. We did that Uh, both sessions of Congress, the last two when we had a majority. But as you know, and as the American people know, we did not have a wide enough majority in the Senate. In the Senate, because of the filibuster, Mm -hmm. uh, the Senate has not acted on protecting access and women's freedom to have access to abortion care. But it is really important that we look at what's happened since uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned by uh, the Republican-controlled Supreme Court, we have seen 23 million women lose access to reproductive health care we've seen 18 states enact harsh abortion bans and we have also seen every single republican nominee express support for a federal national abortion ban we cannot go in that direction and that's why these upcoming elections are critically important
3: but even when there was unified control it wasn't delivered on um, When you look at what's happening now, half of those polled by CBS say abortion access has become more restricted over the past year, as you just detailed. So we know President Biden's taking these executive actions and orders. Why isn't there more grassroots mobilization at the state level if the entire point of the court ruling was that it goes back to the states?
2: We have seen grassroots uh, mobilization at the state level. We've seen states saying you're losing
3: the argument, though. I'm sorry, but you just detailed that state by state in many places you're losing that argument.
2: Well, states are making every effort and grassroots organizations and women across the country are working to put in protections at the state constitutional level. But the challenge that we will face should Republicans uh, maintain control of the House and gain control of the Senate or the White House is that we would see national restrictions that are harsher and more serious than than what we see today. So we've got a very um, we've got a a huge challenge challenge on our hands in the sense that women's reproductive freedoms continue to be rolled back. And the only way to win that is by winning elections, Uh, both making sure that we flip the house and regain control Mm -hmm. and that we elect a wide enough margin, a filibuster proof majority or senators willing to lift the majority to protect women. And we've got to maintain the White House.
3: Well, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley was recently on this program and she said candidates aren't telling the American people the truth. Republicans and Democrats, she puts in that bucket. She said there's you know, there's neither the consensus nor the votes for either party to either legalize or fully ban abortion. Listen to what she said.
1: So let's be honest with the American people and say, let's find national consensus. Let's agree on, you know, getting rid Mm -hmm. of late term abortions. Let's agree on the fact that we need more adoptions. Let's agree on the fact that we need accessible contraception. Let's agree on the fact that mothers shouldn't be jailed or go to, you know, get the death penalty for abortions.
3: Doesn't she have a point? There are smaller issues related to abortion you can find consensus on.
2: The national consensus, Margaret, is that 80 percent of Americans do not agree with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But
3: in terms of what you could actually get passed in Congress.
2: Well, we again, we Democrats passed the Women's Health Care Protection Act in in the the House.
3: House. Yes, only in the House.
2: And the challenge in the Senate is that you need a supermajority. You right. need 60 votes. Exactly. Um, and so, right, which is why we need to win elections this uh, uh, next November. And furthermore, we've got to retain the White House because there's only one person who will be on the ballot next November, and that's President Biden, who has promised and committed to fighting for women's reproductive freedom. The, the, make no mistake about it. Yeah. The, as much as Nikki Haley wants to talk about finding consensus here and there, the bottom line well, is stopping women
3: from being prosecuted, for example, the death penalty. I mean, you have to appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, why not pass a law on that front.
2: Can, can you imagine is that not that's not worth it? That's their. That's where they want to allow. Well, she's offenses. saying,
3: "Let's pass a law to prevent that on the national level."
2: Well, I, 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 my perspective, and I think the vast majority of Americans' perspective is, we want the protections under Roe v. Wade restored. Eighty percent, and in fact, even so, twenty-four weeks.
3: I'm sorry. Uh, protection up to 24 weeks of pregnancy. That's your defined position. I know that's what was in the, the protection act, but specifically that's what you are endorsing.
2: Roe v. Wade essentially protects a woman's right to access abortion. And what we are seeing in states like my own in Texas, where the rollbacks have happened and and the bans are occurring, is that even in in cases where women's health is at risk, uh, politicians don't really care about the the life of the woman.
3: Uh, Congresswoman, thank you for coming on and making that case. We'll be back in a moment.
1: Ah.
3: We turn now to the global hunger crisis and our conversation with the new executive director of the United Nations World Food Program, Cindy McCain. She spoke to us Thursday from New York, where she addressed the U.N. Security Council about what she called a spiraling hunger crisis in parts of the world. There are a lot of fires in the world right now.
12: There's a lot going on. There's a lot of countries that are in deep distress, Somalia being one of them. And so we're spread pretty thin right now. And so to be able to continue the work that we do, obviously we we need more help, but we need the world to pay attention to us also and make sure that people understand it's not just a security crisis in Somalia, it's a humanitarian crisis as well. I know you
3: recently lost some employees in Sudan, where the United States has pulled out because of uh, the violence there. Are you still able to feed people despite the war? Well, we never left
12: Sudan. We, we stalled for a little bit. We paused for a few days, because you're correct, we did lose three people there. Uh, and we had to evacuate our other uh, citizens, our other nationals, as well as our international people out. Uh, but we never left. And so we are now, again, we're back in, we're distributing food. Uh, Again, reminding everyone it's extraordinarily dangerous there right now. So our methods and how we're doing it it, it are a little bit different. But we also have asked the UN to please guarantee us a humanitarian corridor for us to be able to work and operate
3: so we can deliver our food. I know the US is the largest financial donor to the World Food Program and the UN, having given $7.2 billion, more than all other donors combined last year. Meanwhile, the world's second largest economy, China, gave $11 million. How receptive is Beijing to your requests?
12: Well, I'd like to encourage Beijing to get involved and be a part of this. We need, not only do we need their funding, but we need their expertise on many things. Their their technology with regards to agriculture and the technology with regards to, to climate change can be very helpful in these countries that
3: are really struggling with drought and lack of food, et cetera. Is the issue that the government wants credit, and so therefore they want to do it under their own flag, and not through the international system which you represent?
12: I think to some degree you're correct on that. I think it's also just a willingness to be a part of, of working together as a team worldwide. Uh, in these countries that we're in, one agency cannot do cannot do the job. We need partnerships. And so we encourage the Chinese and we encourage many, encourage many other countries around the world to partner with us.
3: You know, in the room, when you are trying to pitch the Security Council, you are looking at the United States, you were talking to China, you're also talking- Talking to Russia, um, mm-hmm. in addition to some other members, but I, I want to pick up specifically on the Kremlin because they said this past week there were no grounds to extend the Black Sea Grain Initiative. That is the deal under which Russia agreed to allow grain to leave the ports of Ukraine, a country it is militarily occupying. That's arguably weaponizing food. What's the impact uh, if that deal goes away? Well, the impact
12: is, again, we're short on grain. And what does that mean? It affects a, lot, a large portion of Africa. We're also short on fertilizer. Fertilizer is the other half of this that's come, that's supposed to be coming out. And so without the fertilizer, in many cases, they're not going to be able to grow crops that, that are as large or as productive as they could be. For all the things that that are going on, I truly wish that we could end this war so that we could begin again to feed people around the world and and so that the Ukrainians can also feed themselves. What's at stake here is starvation and famine.
3: That's what we're looking at. There's been an uptick in migrants to the United States from Haiti, which is now largely uh, controlled by gangs. How do you keep the food you are getting into that island nation out of the hands? Of criminals and into the mouths of starving children
12: well you 're exactly right. Uh, the importance is is that the international community needs to be in there. Uh, to not only help keep the country safe, but to but to help us be enable our organization and other organizations to be able to move the grains around and move food around in general. Uh, the idea in in Haiti, which is such a lush tropical island island, but it is also affected by climate change. It's also affected by by you know by land use. I think the world community has taken a step forward and kind of forgotten Haiti a little bit. So so my job, having returned from Haiti, is to remind the world that Haiti is still there, it still needs our help, it still needs food, it still needs security, and it needs to be able to to
3: prosper in a way so that they don't lose a generation of children. Broadly speaking, extreme weather um, is a factor that's affecting crops and migration. Uh, You've said climate change is influencing the situations in a number of the examples you just gave. Where are you seeing it impact the most?
12: Well, one of the places is the Sahel. Uh, I mean, the, the, if you could see what's down there and see the, the impact that the, the, the climate change has had on it. Uh, so what we're, what we're doing with regards to the Sahel and other regions, particularly in Africa, is water management, uh, teaching ancient ways, which are very simple to do. And climate change, not just in Africa or the Sahel, climate change is worldwide. And we're going to be seeing, uh, you know, we're having to manage crops now that, are, that have to be more resilient to drought. Uh, our animal feed and things have to be more resilient so the animals can be more resistant to drought. There's a lot of things at stake here. And I think when people talk about climate change uh, and, and those naysayers that think climate change isn't real, I'd like to take them to the Sahel and show
3: them what's real. Cindy McCain at the United Nations, thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Ohio Republican congressman and chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan, Texas Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, and executive director of the United Nations World Food Program, Cindy McCain. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.34. 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
1: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast and your emotions, and I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery
8: app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.